Hello and welcome to another episode of Consumer Choice Radio. This is one half of your host, Yael Ososki, broadcasting from Mickey Mouseville uh, here in Orlando, Florida. I've got the uh, air conditioning cranked off. Boy, I'll tell you, it's made a difference. And I'm joined, as always, by my colleague, David Clement, who's over there in Toronto. Looks like he's wearing a little fleece jacket himself, so he's uh, he's escaping the air conditioning as well. How goes it, David? Oh, it's good. It's good. Uh, heat warnings here. Um, getting up to f- almost 40 degrees with the Humidex. So our uh, our climates right now are probably not too different. Um yeah, you really can't do much outside at that temperature. It, it's pretty limiting, um, especially if you have children. Very limiting. Well, it depends. Uh, the shades of the parks are uh, normally a good refuge, but it is true that after a certain level, very, very difficult to go out. Uh, David, I, I mentioned air conditioning in the beginning. I tell you, man, I'm not uh, still not used to it. And... Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I think my voice even sounds different, uh, not just because of my road setup and just um, being blasted with air conditioning the last two days. Very, very strange ordeal. It's uh, not what I'm used to. Yeah, you're probably not used to sleeping with it on. And then you're you get like you wake up and you're kind of you got like a dry throat and you sound like you smoked a couple cigars in your sleep or something. I mean, I'm used to uh, sweating through the evening and uh, get, getting up in the middle of the night and throwing open the window, yeah. hearing honk, honking down in the bottom, <laughs> getting a, a moth flying in the room. Uh, but yeah, not at this establishment. I am at a very beautiful resort uh, in Orlando looking over, oh man, they've got all kinds of stuff. They've got slides and pools and... Uh, palm trees and many other things that I will not have time to enjoy at all. Apparently, there's a don't golf love club that? too, David. I think yeah, don't you love that too. when you end up somewhere awesome? But I've had a couple trips like that where you'd be like, "Oh yeah, I was in this city," and people are like, "Oh well, did you see this?" And you're like, "No." Did you see that? No. What about that? And you're like, oh, "I think I drove by it." on my way back to the airport but other than that i saw the inside of a hotel and the inside of a bar (laughs) oh boy yes uh this is indeed true i mean uh orlando i've been to a good amount i was also in uh, miami yesterday being with a friend which is uh, very cool miami always has a specific i don't know it's got something it's got a little bit of magic a little bit of you can feel it when you're in miami the spanish words are thrown at you um, yep. Luckily, I'm able to, you know, to talk back. But I don't know. There's just something about it. And I, we actually ventured into a couple of neighborhoods. Um, so if we can uh, get on the Yimby horse real quick, yes, in my backyard, uh, visited a couple of really beautiful neighborhoods, which you don't normally do in some places if you don't know the areas. Um, luckily, my friend has been living here a while, so at least knew these. But you know, we were able to see some nice houses and places, and actually. Real estate was not that bad, and we're in Miami and looking at very nice houses, and these things were, uh, David, $1.2 million, and um, yeah, you're, you're about 10 minutes from uh, downtown Miami. You're about uh, 15 minutes from the beach. It was uh, pretty astounding. I was, I was very yeah. surprised by that, and these are very nice properties, and uh, there's a lot of shade, a lot of trees. Uh, just, just overall beautiful. I mean, Florida's a, 
Florida's kicking it. We can talk about uh, a little bit later in the program uh, what is happening with uh, Governor Ron DeSantis. Well, um, I was going to say, Yael, don't tell, don't tell Ronald that uh, you're in the vicinity of Disney and its properties because that might irritate him. Well, actually, I'll have you know he's at the same event. Uh, oh. He was here earlier this week. Uh, he gave a speech. Unfortunately, I missed it because I was flying in, but... Uh, he is still on the presidential trail, which means also Ron DeSantis does have to go see those uh, Mickey Mouse ears. Uh, well, I'm yeah. here for the uh, the ALEC conference, American Legislative Exchange Council. David, I think I did my report last um, last year as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, where was I then? That was in Atlanta, I believe. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I was able to give that that update. Uh, I believe I the got update something was called Atlanta. Yeah, hit me with it. So... Uh... In the ongoing battle between the Ronald and the Donald, um, DeSantis said that he would be open to the idea of having RFK Jr., not as a running mate, he ruled that out, but possibly running the CDC. <laughs> and it's just like, what on earth? I don't think you uh, you could put a... Um, you could put a worse person. And look, I have my criticisms of the CDC um, and health regulators from a approval standpoint. They're the FDA, the CDC, or sorry, I think he said the FDA, not the CDC. I stand corrected. The FDA is archaically slow at approving new innovative medicines. And the funny thing is, is that RFK almost always um, is on the other side of that. <laughs> He's on the other side being like, no, they're poisoning us with everything. Everything is bad. He's got some pretty Looney Tune views on vaccines historically. Um, so what's your take? What's your take? Are you on the – you're not on the RFK train, I don't think. Well, I think it's two different things. Um, I think uh, it's a it's a bold and interesting move to often say I'm going to place X or Y person in charge of X department You know, in the case that I am elected. Um, I think it's interesting because it does open up your mind, and it's a um, it's what the creator of Dilbert, uh, Scott Adams, would say is uh, uh, accurate foreshadowing. Because what it does is it places in your mind the idea that Ron DeSantis is sitting there in the White House and is flipping through the notebook looking at who's going to be in what position. So you're yeah. already comfortable with that idea in your mind. So that's a nice little uh, tool. Yeah, of but I'll give you the counterpoint to that. Okay, what's that? The counterpoint to that is when you affirmatively state something like, yes, I would consider him for, or he would be the person who leads the FDA, you then own, have to own everything that whoever you name, whether it's RFK or anybody else, you have to own what they say. Oh, no. The the next time someone, the next time RFK says something silly, He's on Dazanis is on the campaign trail, and then it's good. The conversation is about: Would you really still consider RFK so it, run it, the it's FDA yes and, after saying this? It, it's yes and no. Um, it, it would. It's obviously going to be on the technical area where that person is being considered. So this would be on uh, sort of food and drug regulation policy. Um, you know what I think overall? It's I I from the outside. Yeah, not going too much into the details. I like the idea of someone who's been an FDA critic for a long time being at the head of the FDA. I think that is interesting. Um, the 
probably more appropriate choice is the one that President Trump likely considered, and that's uh, Balaji Slavnesarian, who's the uh, sort of tech investor guy. Uh, he used to be at Coinbase, and now he's wrote this uh, great book on um, the future of nations and stuff like that. Uh, he was a bit more interesting because he's incredibly critical of FDA and how long they take to approve drugs and um, kind of big on the innovation bandwagon. Um, meanwhile, what the case is made by RFK Jr. is he says the agency is captured. And, you know, you, you can look at it from certain angles and see that. Obviously, you have a lot of people who depart the FDA and go work in um, a number of different industries, whether it be pharmaceutical, tobacco, or something else. I mean, that's just kind of the swinging door of Washington, D.C. Uh, I, I do see it as a kind of Trump-esque move in that it's it's we're here to drain the swamp, kind of. Um, I don't know if that's the best move, because he sees... This is the thing about many conspiracy theories overall, is like either someone or an industry or a company or a government agency they're either incredibly corrupt and evil or they're just really dumb and stupid right yeah and it's the same with george bush right he was either an evil mastermind or the dumbest man on the planet and it's the same (laughs) with trump so which one is it and what guardrails can we put in place to kind of mitigate that i think people have People have a, a don't know how to approach RFK. That's why I think numbers came out recently about uh, he's obviously drawing a lot of support from Republicans and from um, some independents. Um, but yeah, there's I think there's a lot of different factors there. I think it, it's it's something different. <laughs> so I'm not uh, I don't think it's the most wacko thing. Um, I don't know if he's a fan of the things that we like, like um, fast you know drug approvals or reciprocal. Uh, drug approvals, things like vaping. I don't know if he's talked about that much. My instinct would be he'd be very much against most of that, and he'd want to have a very complicated Mm -hmm. process for every drug. So overall, probably not a good thing optics-wise. Why not? It means DeSantis can kind of capture that RFK interest without, you know, basically doing any real work, just kind of floating a name out there. Yeah, I mean... I suppose not not my cup of tea doesn't appeal to me but you raise another good um a good point like the revolving door while i repel house cleaning how good am i yeah i saw that i saw that um like how many people how many people does she walk in the room on and they're doing podcasts or like radio shows it's like this is my fourth Um, podcast this week that i see that somebody's recording too many podcasts. All right, um, but you, you raise a good point about the revolving door of there was a story that came out where some, the second in command at the DEA didn't disclose that he had worked for Purdue Pharma for like four years before going to the DEA and mm. then was responsible for oversight. <laughs> and it's funny because we see this revolving door in um, – in most regulatory aspects, whether it's finance or uh, the FDA or the DEA, and it raises some pretty good questions. I mean, maybe that's the appeal for RFK is that he's an out- outsider. He's not someone yeah. who spent years lobbying the rules to then write the rules to then go back to lobbying the rules and kind of that back and forth ping pong game that we see. 
Um, I realize I'm probably starting to sound a little bit like a lefty here. No, uh, but I think it's an it's an interest, and this is really it stems from the critique that RFK has made in his campaign, and he's made a couple, um, some of which that I I do believe are a bit loony, and um, you know I've written about that. I think our colleague Bill will be writing an article on it. I don't know if it's out yet. Uh, there's a lot of stuff in the consumer choice realm, specifically wanting to jail uh, anybody <laughs> anybody who thinks that you know petroleum products are still important for the planet. Uh, you know, this kind of stuff. Um, but his critique about agency capture is an important one. And it's not necessarily original. It's just original from someone running for office. Not unlike what Mr. Trump said about he had these like small murmurs about the military industrial complex at some point. I mean, he obviously forgot this the second he showed up in D.C., but it was at least it was something that he, he introduced into the campaign a little bit that I think is is at least pretty interesting. And uh, we can actually maybe talk about Oppenheimer um, in the second segment because I think the, there's actually some relevant points there too. Yeah, that would be a good one. It's on my list. I have not um, I have not seen it yet, but... Oh, that's right. You're a young dad, so you can't go to the cinema. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, movies are... Movies require a lot of coordination. It is. Planning. I think. I think it was my first movie that I've actually been to in the theater in many years. So um, yeah. it was uh, definitely an exception, um, not the rule. Uh, but I, man, I, I think the agency capture thing is something that is important. It's it's normally a very complex matter for a lot of consumers, and I've heard of a lot of different examples of ways we can try to stop that. Um, we've we've had uh, we've had discussions about Senator Richard Burr from the state of North Carolina. Yeah. Um, so he he basically is out the door, going to have like nice little um, lobby position. You're technically not able to directly lobby your colleagues if you've just left government or some agency. Yeah, there's a cooling off period, isn't there? Yeah, there's a cooling off period. Usually it's two years. Uh, But really what happens is you're just hired by the lobby firm and you just give kind of general advice. And then after those two years are up, you're in the same office. (laughs) And then they just say, okay, now go talk to your buddy, you know, Jim. Um, and, and see what we can do about X or Y bill. So um, there's, we can actually talk about the lobby thing because I, I think that is, um, it is something to think about and, and something that does need some exploration. Uh, perhaps RFK is not the best messenger, uh, but at least somewhat interesting uh, to this narrative. But uh, we'll be back to discuss that here on Consumer Choice Radio. You guys keep tuning in here on Saga 960 AM and on Coastal Carolina Network. We'll be right back after this. And welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio. Going into our second segment, I'm broadcasting from uh, the Mickey... What did, I, what did I say? The Mickey Mouse... Uh, Mickey Mouse Land. Mickey Mouse Land. Uh, the, Mickey, the Mickey Studio in Orlando, Florida. Uh, David, before we uh, kind of went off to our commercial break, we talked about uh, capture, uh, agency capture, uh, lobby rules, in the context of RFK perhaps being <laughs> tapped to lead the FDA... Um, there's been a lot of you know interesting names that have been floated or positions that have been handed out to people. Um, I'm even thinking of someone like Pete Buttigieg, and mm-hmm. uh, a lot of people are very interested in what he'd do as Secretary of, of Transportation. Um, I think it's pretty true to say he's been pr- a very flat disappointment. Am I wrong? No, I think you're. He's, he's got some yimby tendencies a little bit, but it seems on on transportation we've had many issues, and uh, he hasn't really. Had too many uh, 
Too yeah, many I think he inherited in a the dumpster pocket. fire, and there's a limitation on like what he can actually do. Um, so yeah, not great. No, he, he's almost kind of been kneecapped by the post um, in transportation, although it's a big one. Uh, it, I don't think it particularly lets him shine. And he's had to deal with like, you have all the flight issues and the delays, then you have Norfolk Southern and train derailments. And it's like strikes at the port. Your yeah, transportation secretary shouldn't be in a perfect world is not facing the press over some major problem um, that often. Uh, and yet he is, whether or not that's his fault. I don't know enough about the inner workings of that to determine whether it's his fault. But at the same time, like it's, it's, it, it doesn't build his career or his pedigree uh, in the way that it should. Uh, well, the guy was a mayor. That's the last thing he yeah. did. So I think he's been elevated a little bit. And uh, added to that, uh, one of Obama's uh, secretary of transportation was in a similar position. He was also a mayor. Uh, Anthony Fox used to be the mayor of Charlotte, North Carolina. Oh. And, um, you know, I guess his qualification was uh, we, we have this uh, streetcar, um, the, I forget, I forget what it's called, but uh, Uptown Link or something like this, um, that goes from uh, Charlotte to the university. Um, it's like, it's about, what, four miles? And uh, this is considered a, a huge engineering marvel um, that uh, pushed him up to be Secretary of Transportation. <laughs> no, but I guess with a lot of the airport stuff as well. Yeah. And, you know, if you're Secretary of Transportation, there are some interesting things you can do. Um, Pete Buttigieg, it seems, has had a lot of great puff pieces that talked about the fact that he can read Norwegian or he likes to quote Hamlet or something, but not too much about, you know, what, what's his strategy for the Jones Act or, yeah. you know, high-speed rail or something like this. So, you know, it could be. Um, I do want to talk about some agency or ministry shuffles uh, yep. a bit later in the segment uh, with Canada. But um, do you have anything to add on on anything related to agency capture? Because we talked about FDA. Um, there's many different ones that we could talk about that I, I think uh, make some interesting examples. Obviously, the FTC, Federal Trade Commission, the competition agency, yep. um, that it's a bit opposite. You go in having someone who is a company and technology hater – in Lena Khan, who's our age, um, and uh, basically she's the one filing lawsuits against Amazon, Microsoft, and losing uh, Facebook, Meta, and um, yeah, she's she's not batting a perfect record. We'll say that. No, she's striking out at every <laughs> at every chance she gets. Yeah, I was at a sports bar, so I saw I have a lot of baseball in my mind, but I guess yeah. it's very appropriate for a political uh, Lena Khan. Uh, o for four. <laughs> caught looking twice on a third strike, struck out swinging twice. Not a great night for her. It's it's not like she's batting a thousand all the time. Right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Actually, uh, yeah. Um, you you took me in it when you said batting a thousand. There's a great comedian. This will lead me into something else I want to talk about. Um, the hearings in the U.S. over UFOs. The, the whistleblower who says that there's like a UFO program where they capture the UFOs and whatnot. Um, a friend of the show, Nancy Mace, was one of the Congress uh, congresswomen. Uh, Nancy Mace was, I guess, questioning or cross-examining <laughs> um, the, the witness. <laughs> and it was all over Barstool. <laughs> it was quite hilarious. Um, but there's a there's a great comedian who's got, uh, got a, a joke I'll 
site because it's hilarious. He's like, I don't trust people who don't believe in conspiracy theories. And the crowd kind of goes like quiet. He's like, come on. You got to believe at least one conspiracy theory. You think the government's up here batting a thousand, just telling the whole truth and nothing but the truth. (laughs) And then the crowd starts to laugh and he goes, let me put it this way. The government is responsible for all of its people. He's like, I have one son. I lie to that kid all the time. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, I, I haven't. Uh, I've seen clips of the uh, the hearing. I haven't been able to watch it since I've been on the road, um, enjoying the private toll roads of uh, beautiful uh, Central Florida. Uh, but with the, I don't know. There's been a lot of different takes on the. Um, I think it's called unidentified uh, flying. Do they say aircraft now? Because there's a different name. Now it's UFA, I believe. Yeah. They've changed the definition, which is uh, similar to this heat index thing, by the way, but we won't talk about that. Uh, I th- uh, with with uh, the agency capture, though, and the oversight hearings, I've been plugged in, David, on these weaponization of government hearings. And that is where RFK did uh, also have testimony. Uh, you've had a lot of people from... Uh, FBI, you've had IRS whistleblowers, you know, related to the Hunter Biden laptop and case. Uh, and yep. we did have a big change in that case um, that just happened yesterday. I got caught yeah, up on that. Yeah, the deal fell through. Deal fell through because the judge said there's a lot of, um, there's some there's some, some hookery, there's some weird, bad word, uh, there's, some, there's some funny business in this deal uh, because apparently they're trying to set it up so that he'd be exempt from or basically immune from charges on like anything. <laughs> anything that was discussed in the office between uh, the prosecution and the defense, he would have been a sort of uh, immune from prosecution on, uh, which is pretty broad. And I think the rules yeah. don't allow you to do that as far as for I two years of probation. Yeah. As on, long as you do your two years and stay on clean, a hundred thousand dollar tax charge and a gun charge as a drug user. And just imagine if this was not Hunter Biden and it was just some gentleman from Arkansas with over a hundred thousand in tax owing and a gun charge as a drug user, that guy's going to jail. Straight to jail. Right to jail. Um, and so it's, and you can argue that maybe he shouldn't go to jail. Um, I, I don't know where I would stand on whether or not he should go to jail for whatever the charges are, but it's the disparity. And that just leads people to wonder, well, is this preferential treatment? Is it because of who he is and who his father is? The optics are just so bad. You know, if this was like three years from now, you know, it would not even be an issue. Right. But it's because no. there's an election, you know, campaign that's starting up. And because um, I will say one thing that RFK did introduce into the lexicon is this idea of um, malinformation. Oh. So it's not misinformation or disinformation. It's malinformation. Apparently, this was cited in some of the Twitter file documents uh, in which the Biden White House, on the first day that they had power, uh, whatever that was, January 21st, um, was it 2021 or 2020? I don't remember. Uh, basically, they sent the email to Twitter asking them to uh, please um, put down this post and suspend the account of RFK Jr. on, uh, I think, some COVID thing. I don't really remember. 
Uh, but he said malinformation, uh, as it was defined in the Twitter files, is not incorrect information. It's information that is inconvenient to various government governmental efforts. Yeah, that's gross. So, yeah, and like um, I can understand. Um, I can which understand has been the, the Hunter Biden laptop, you know, scenario from the yeah. very beginning. And and this is where it gets complicated because like. I can understand. So let's say there's a social media account that's pumping a lot of money into ads on election day that's giving people the wrong information on where to vote. Like it's per- it's dr- done purposely to like drive confusion and, and stop people from voting. I could understand the government having a case there to request for that content to be removed or to intervene. Um, in the same way, if like terrorists were using on on either insert whatever version of terrorism you want, uh, we're using social media to coordinate or recruit. Totally appropriate, but when it's just information that makes the process of being in government more difficult, that is a very uncomfortable line to cross. Very uncomfortable line to cross. Yeah, and uh, you know, I had, um, I always had, I was always skeptical of governmental power um, on very large questions. But the more I think, David, that we work on various policies and we follow things related to consumer choice, uh, we can see that there's a lot of this. And uh, God help you if you try to watch a press conference by any of these governmental agencies, whether it be the military, or the State Department, or whatever. I mean, these are spin masters. This is a spin master class 101. Uh, I think we would be actually be pretty good at this job, uh, by the way, being that press secretary for any of these departments. Put me up there. Uh, I'd probably be – they'd probably put me at Department of Transportation or something else. But uh, I think we could do a pretty good job there. Basically, I'm well, saying I'd be creative and with massaging the facts. <laughs> yes. Well, so I, you you missed it while you were out. But the joke I made with Bill was I wish I could – imagine a skit that's like – just your ordinary day to day at home, like with a like a married couple, and you have a press secretary to field all the questions from your wife. It's like, why aren't the dishes done? Well, you know, we just want to restate. Let me be very clear. We care passionately about the dishes getting done, but there were some logistical hurdles, and we're still committed to that goal, and we are steadfast in in our, our maintaining that promise, <laughs> that would be the best comedy skit where like at every conflict conversation, you just have the press secretary step in to answer on your behalf and get some fluffy non-answer that like evades and <laughs> avoids, avoids anything of merit or seriousness. Well, before we, we, we go out and uh, we're going to play an interview for our third segment talking about um, sort of social media in the Supreme Court with uh, Will Duffield, um, I wanted to ask very quickly about this agency reshuffling or ministry reshuffling oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. in Canada. Um, yep. So if you could, what are the main takeaways from this? I saw a couple bozos are out, which is good, but what's your take? Well, there's, there's a series of ministers who obviously were told that they were getting removed and now are leaving politics, um, which is a – some people view that as like the, like liberals leaving a sinking ship. 
And I mean, the polls released yesterday suggest that that might have some merit. The conservatives are at 38. The liberals are at 28. The NDP are at 18. So it's a 10 point gap right now between the liberals and the conservatives, which is pretty considerable. Um, I don't think there's a scenario where the liberals win the most seats if that holds true. Um, there, there are a couple of ministers who I'm shocked still have ministerial positions like Marco Mendicino. Um, oh, boy. He's he. I mean, the whole par, Paul Bernardo serial killer transferred to a medium security scandal is like a week old, barely. And yet he's still getting tapped to uh, to have another ministry. And then the funny thing is, is that there was a ministry that was created for citizen services. And they asked the guy who got that portfolio what it is. And he didn't know because they haven't really decided what it is yet. He's like, yeah, you know, it's. It's the ministry for, it's where rubber hits the road. Jeez. <laughs> That's oh, it. Oh, yeah. And uh, our, our friend of the show, um, Raquel Dancho, was, uh, she's the critic, was the public yes. safety critic, and did a very good job of holding him to account. Uh, is Melanie Jolie still up in there? She's she stayed still, at uh, Foreign Affairs, which, again, is a shock. I'm, a, I don't look at the right moves there. and go, oh, okay, they've really reshuffled the deck to their advantage going into the next election. I think there's a lot of people who are looking at this and going, yeah, you reshuffled the deck with the same cards, but they're still the same cards. A lot of jokers. Oh, yeah. Well. yeah. <laughs> well, we'll talk more about that in the next couple of weeks, David. Uh, now we'll go to our interview with Will. And uh, David, I, I wish you uh, best of luck here from Orlando, and uh, let's talk again next week. Until then. And welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio. I told you there'd be some great content here in the second block, and that's indeed what we're giving you. We're speaking with Mr. Will Duffield. He is policy analyst at the Cato Institute. We've had him on the program before. He's now a bona fide friend of the show, and uh, there is a... We had we had a, a, a court ruling that just came out, and um, basically I had to get Will on to discuss it and talk about it. This is his area that uh, he's been covering for a while, talking about the internet, about all kinds of uh, internet policies, uh, Section 230, uh, everything related to online social media. So, Will, thanks so much for taking your time to be on Consumer Choice Radio. Thanks for having me. So let's uh, get into this. This is a case, Missouri v. Biden. Um, from what I saw of MAGA World, they were very excited by this. Uh, if you could just kind of explain uh, top level exactly what this bill does, uh, what the bill or bill. <laughs> See, this is I'm in legislative mode. Uh, what the actual judge said, what this injunction means, and uh, then you can perhaps give your own little spin as to the analysis of it. Sure. So. This case is a lawsuit against the Biden administration brought by the states of Louisiana and Missouri, alleging that the administration improperly pushed, compelled, persuaded um, social media platforms to remove COVID skeptical and other controversial speech in 2021. Um, this, as, as you note, is a preliminary injunction. It's not a final solution to any of this, and I think some folks following it online have gotten a little ahead of themselves there. But 
it is very important to see courts taking these kinds of claims seriously, appreciating that government pressure, whether it's an outright threat or not, can still pose a threat to people's First Amendment rights, ability to express themselves, uh, that by leaning on intermediaries, you can alter what people can and can't say. And so that recognition is important. Um, but this is a preliminary injunction. There'll be a merits ruling later on. And even this injunction itself, while on its face quite broad, illustrates how hard it is to draw clear, specific lines between the government informing platforms of something and exerting improper, unconstitutional pressure. And from what we see of this, this will prohibit um, various agencies of the government, including the Biden administration. There are a certain number of named individuals, departments and such. Uh, they will be prohibited from contacting social media companies for the purpose of essentially trying to uh, pressure them to take down a post. Uh, of course, there is an, accept an exemption if it relates to something like national security, an ongoing criminal procedure, etc., um, for this, you know, a lot of people are on either side. I, I saw um, Matt Welch of Reason was on CNN, and uh, a lot of the uh, the journalists there on the panel were it's like, oh, well, this is just a travesty. You know, there's so much disinformation that will run rampant. Uh, tell me, Mr. Duffield, do you feel that the disinformation will run rampant now that the uh, Biden administration cannot uh, reach out to the social medias and, and tell them to uh, perhaps take down some posts? I, I don't think jawboned pressure is an especially effective remedy to, to disinformation or misinformation. Um, you know, one, even though it can be a threat to individual speakers who, who are taken down, when you think about the scale of a problem like people getting things wrong on the internet or even maliciously spreading wrong information, it's much, much too big for an ad hoc system of emailed complaints from the State Department, the FBI, the White House to really tackle. Uh, so first off, it, it's never going to be a good solution to disinformation. And in, in many ways, it's designed or will inevitably uh, focus on kind of high profile things that upset the administration, but aren't necessarily the most false or most viral claims going around online. And secondly, just knowing that this is happening behind the scenes, but not being able to know when your, your speech is, is affected, whose speech has been affected, I think gives a lot of cover to those who spread myths or disinfo and platforms crack down on them. And they can say, look, there's a conspiracy against me. I'm being censored perhaps by the government and no one can really say otherwise. So it contributes to a general climate of distrust um, while doing far too little in terms of actual prompted removals, even if you were to agree with them, even if they were to be uh, the, the right calls um, to actually change the problem or fix it. So not at all. And, <laughs> yeah, and like so much of uh, what we see out of this administration, uh, there's been a lot of calls to, well, ultimately, Congress should fix this. And I will point over our listeners, and I'll include this in the show notes. Uh, you have a, a post up at uh, Cato at Liberty, judge blocks job owning, question mark. 
And uh, you, you give a, a very good analysis of this as well, because, again, this is not a, a black or white. It's not a, a full scale permanent solution. This is a temporary injunction. And one, one point that you make that I have not seen made elsewhere is about disclosure, uh, wherein we learn what are those government requests to various social media accounts, uh, social media services, because I think that would be very important. We have it and we've seen some of the, the companies like Apple is an example to where when they get requests from law enforcement, you know, they have a little database and they can say we've re received X number of warrants. Uh, but you're, you're stating that disclosure of those uh, sort of government requests, which were once informal, perhaps would be a better way to uh, attack this rather than just a, a blanket prohibition. Yes, and unlike the kind of year-end reviews that platforms have released, you really want the content of these government messages so you can decide on a case-by-case -case basis, was this appropriate or not. A disclosure-based solution is really a product of the difficulty we see in drawing clear workable lines in this injunction. On one hand, in the top half, you have a laundry list of prohibitions. You can't meet for purposes of encouraging removals, changing content policies, complaining about particular accounts or speakers. But on the other hand, you have exemptions for informing platforms about electoral misinformation or election interference attempts. And that exception can swallow the entirety of the New York Post, Twitter, Hunter Biden story fracas. Um, what are the government warnings that seem to prompt their removal of that story, but notification about the potential of election interference? And so drawing any singular sort of general line here um, is, is very difficult. And in the face of not being able to do that in order to guide a, a prohibition, um, the, the best alternative is really disclosure. Just putting that content front and center, um, the government publishing it on a regular basis, such that users, if they've been censored, if their, their speech has been removed after they were were implicated in a particular government request have a much easier time suing in, in that particular case. But more broadly, on the margin, there are many requests, complaints, that government officials simply won't send if they know that they're going to be public. And so you hope that on the margin, the less appropriate requests just, just don't get made. The mafioso language that we saw from some in the White House doesn't get used, and you have a, a better environment. But that's the sort of thing that will take an act of Congress. And I've seen from a comment from some of the uh, groups that do represent some of the tech companies uh, that this will actually do something with Section 230 liabilities. It could actually change the metric. It could make social media companies more liable. Do you kind of agree with that? Do you see that there's an opening for the changing of Section 230? I don't know if they were intonating that from the judge's comments or just generally it's the legal lines that are... And look, I'm no lawyer, but I, I don't know if that's something that, that you read out of this. Um, so... Certainly not on any, any disclosure side. I'm working on a, a model bill at the moment that will not touch Section 230. As far as this injunction, um, I don't see it 
affecting Section 230 as, as written. You know, it's an injunction. It doesn't directly involve CDA 230. However, um, when the, the line of jurisprudence that the court has taken up here and the way that the court has used existing precedent, really expanded it in a way, makes it more likely that at merits platforms may be treated as state actors and that a remedy may fall on them rather than solely on government. To get into the weeds a little, there are two Supreme Court cases that deal with jawboning or government informal pressure. Um, there's Bantam Books v. Sullivan, a case which drew a line at explicit threats. The threat doesn't have to be acted upon, but if the government makes an explicit threat, then that's inappropriate, that's unconstitutional, can have that. The other, Blum v. Uretsky, creates a sort of two-part test, first asking whether the government offered significant encouragement for the removal or activity, and then asking whether the, the activity or decision can be viewed, in essence, as that of the states rather than the private platforms. And here, in this injunction, the judge seems to have mostly relied on the first part of that Blum test, asking just whether there was significant encouragement and finding lots of evidence thereof. But ultimately, when you're looking at digital content moderation, where the platforms are making lots of decisions all the time, determining whether or not they would have made a call differently in the absence of some general government statement is extremely difficult, if not impossible. And so the Bantam Books test is ultimately a better fit for this online space and causes us or causes courts to focus on coercive, threatening speech rather than platform actions, which may set up better remedies that focus on government rather than tying platforms' hands. I see there. Okay. I think that's a very important context for a lot of that because, again, these it's not just a judge who's going willy-nilly or has, has been termed in the media that he's just a Trump judge. You know, he actually has to pull from some of these other uh, decisions. So sort of in closing of this and looking at what this means for sort of the future of, of freedom of speech online and the role of, of government in attempting to try to have some rails, you know, is it what will be the ultimate impact, you think, of this injunction or the case itself? Yeah, I, I can ultimately see this case improving things on the margin. But I think coming up with a workable judicial remedy here is going to be very difficult. In many ways, this is it's a valuable watershed case, but the aspects which make it big and attention-grabbing also make it much harder to come up with a viable remedy because you're talking about government action across multiple agencies, many different personnel involved over several years. And in many cases, on the basis of a crisis, which is now sort of past. But I think the, the best that can come of this 
is just that it will draw a tremendous amount of ongoing attention to this problem. It's already sort of broken it open as an issue. Uh, to go to that CNN Welch interview the other day, you wouldn't be having that in, in the absence of a ruling like this. And I think it'll light more of a fire under Congress to come up with some kind of solution, especially if it becomes clear through the course of this case that the judiciary just isn't the best or most thoughtful vehicle for coming up with a comprehensive solution to this. Uh, so best case, this juices interest in perhaps a disclosure-based solution uh, model bill about which will be released later this this summer. Um, All right. So keep keep your eyes peeled for that. Definitely will. All right. We've been speaking with Will Duffield. You can find him on the tweeters over there, Will underscore Duffield of the Cato Institute. Will, thanks so much for your analysis. Very helpful for our listeners and uh, wish you the best of luck. Hope to have you back on soon. Thanks for having me. I'll be back about that bill. <laughs>